Welcome to Break the Silence, Build the Future, a podcast dedicated to amplifying the voices of survivors and advocates while shedding light on the pervasive issue of gender-based violence. Join us on a journey where survivors find strength in sharing their stories and experts offer profound insight into this critical societal issue. Today, I'm joined by Alamatu Dominikin, award-winning advocate of girls and women's rights, mentor, a friend, founder of One Girl at a Time. She's joining me all the way from London, UK. Thank you, Alamatu. Thank you, Fatuma, for having me. And um, I want to also say hello to the audience that will be listening to this and for um, colleagues around the world working so hard this time of the year to put things right and supporting um, victims and survivors of domestic abuse. Thank you. Thank you for joining us. There is an impact and consequence for these happening. So what do you think could be some of the impact or the consequence, not only for the person, but the community for us ignoring or failing to recognize or not to reconcile after we recognized the violence against women and girls? Yes. Over time, we see the impact of gender-based violence on an individual and then on a community and perhaps on a country. So many countries around the world, particularly in the developing world, the incidences of child marriage destroyed entire generation of young girls before they're even women forced into marriage or um, having children before they're adults. We know it causes things like poverty. It causes things like high level of illiteracy, girls not being able to go to school as a result of being forced into marriage that they're not ready for. We know the incidence of gender-based violence in terms of the economical cost cost a lot of money for women accessing services and support. We know every case of domestic abuse, it means somebody, a child, a family, a whole community will be destroyed by the impact of that individual. If I use an example, a mother who's a teacher and has two children in school, She's an expert in what she's doing. And one day she was subjected to extreme violence at home from her husband, which meant she could not go to work. And not going to work meant her students were not able to get the support that they needed. And her two children, because again, she would take her children to school, but because she was so violently um, violated, she was unable to take her children to school. Now, if you can look at that and the impact that is having already in terms of the extension and the depth of that, and then you imagine the services that she has to access. She had to move home. She had to go into a refuge. It meant she lost every sense of her immediate surrounding, the safety that she may have had, um, connections she may have had from her local community where she lives because now she has to move homes and go into a refuge for every woman that goes into a domestic violent refuge for example it means a lot of money for the local authority who are providing that shelter who are looking after their children providing a counselor providing a play assistance for children providing food providing shelter all of these things cost a lot of money. These are just some of the examples I could use, 
there are many more. So we look at the economical cost, we look at the social cost, we look at the individual cost that violence does have. And challenging violence and abuse also has a cost going to court. We also want to let people know how far reaching the impact can be. Using your examples, gender-based violence in general, it impacts an individual person. Like you said earlier on, it's targeted and sustained abuse against an individual. But the consequence, the outcome of that abuse doesn't stay just with the individual. It's like throwing a rock in a water and watching those ripples go out and it affects children of that person, other family members. It affects the community they live in because they might not be able, like that teacher, to show up to work to provide services. Also, there is an economic impact for this person is not fully functioning member of the community and also we need to take care of their needs financially even though if it's not the best thing and and then there is a cost when we have to go through the court so there is this you know ripple effect that's that's real not not assumed not imagined but real economically psychologically and socially impacting when we see that it's almost cheaper and far more valuable to have resources and support in place, both the victim and community at large, so we can get to the issue before it gets to where my daughter's situation got to. I'm in Ontario and I consider myself somebody who's aware of what's available in the community, who has a professional job, who's resourceful in getting services. But when my daughter finally decided she was going to leave, it's been really challenging figuring out where resources are and also finding sustained resources that will move from leaving the violent situation to reestablishing herself, whether that is housing support, psychological support, legal support, and even providing the person for full scope of the risk they're in, giving them some kind of risk assessment. Yes, we have some supports that are in place. We have a shelter in the city. We have support for women and here and there, but it's fractured in small pieces, small doses, and it's not like an umbrella. So somebody like me who is now, unfortunately, after tragic loss, realizing that this really fracture is where the issue is. How do we go about so we could have linear and, and sustained and connected support and resources rather than pockets of fractured unsustainable support. Again, we don't always have to wait to a tragic event for us to act. For me, it's to actually give people an image in terms of the numbers. And then you see why it's so important for us to invest in domestic violence services and the provision that that provides for victims. Now, it says in the United States that 10 million, 10 million people have experienced domestic abuse annually in the United States. And I would like to think that could be similar to what is going on in your country and in my country in the UK. Mm -hmm. And it says one in three women and one in four men 
at some point would have experienced some form of physical abuse, which means they would require some medical assistance. And you look at the depth of that. Domestic violence is psychological, physical, it's sexual, it's verbal, it's emotional. It affects a wide range of one's life and their community. So investing in services is crucial. Having a holistic service in the United Kingdom, for example, it would take somebody asking for help 25 times before a victim can seek for help. And in that time, when they do seek for help, it's so important, the help that they are seeking, not just providing the shelter. Often you have to work through the criminal justice system and getting medical assistance and educating victims as well about their circumstances. In fact, is where we spend most of our time empowering them to stay away from the abuse that they're going through. It requires expert support, psychologists, psychiatrists. It would involve a mentor. It would involve a teacher. And often you need to work with these services in order to feel supported. So it's so important that we invest in domestic violence services, not just providing a shelter. If you're going to provide a shelter, is ensuring that the victims that go into these shelters get all the support, provide a holistic support. In the UK now, every local authority is now required by the government to have services catering to the needs of domestic violence victims. The government has passed a law for the first time considering the impact that domestic violence is having on children. We know also that a lot of particularly black and ethnic minority women, single women, are more likely to face domestic violence in an intimate partner situation. So we do provide shelters, And in those shelters, we do provide a lot of services because, again, the risks are there. Once you've done an assessment to identify what the risks are, the victim has to have all those provisions, providing them with the support that they need. In some cases, once you've done the assessment, it will say this individual need more support around economic empowerment. That she has been a victim of economic abuse. I once supported a woman who had come to the United Kingdom as a spouse. And obviously her immigration status was dependent on her being married to the abuser. And initially what the abuser did was withhold her documents. So she had no passports, nothing whatsoever in terms of her identity. And she was slightly concerned about, and one of the reasons why she did not leave because the abuse began from the first day she entered the United Kingdom. She was constantly abused Mm -hmm. and she could not do anything about it because she felt had she gone to the police, it meant her immigration status would be revoked. Mm -hmm. And so what we did was to help her within her own right, because again, we have legislation here in the UK that enables somebody who has entered the United Kingdom as a spouse to get some kind of reprieve. It's not for long, it's usually for three months, but it's a reprieve nonetheless to make them think, do I want to now stay in the UK or would I like to go back to my home country? Within that three months, it allows advocates, agencies to get involved, either considering looking other options that may be available, perhaps seeking asylum 
on the grounds that she's a victim of abuse. In accessing support, we were able to establish an option that she had, which meant she could stay in the UK and even work in the UK. And the next thing was to find employment by registering her with a, a recruitment agency that was able to find her work. Thank you so much. What you explained there, it looks like compared to what we have at the very least in Ontario, I'm not sure about the other provinces, what you have in UK looks like bottom up in supporting the person and also top down where all levels of government seem to be somewhat involved in providing services that needed to be done, whether it's the federal level, which allowing the woman to secure some kind of immigration status to stay in the country to the local level where she gets a housing and support. As far as I understand in Ontario, we don't have that, uh, you know, bottom up of supporting the individual and top down where levels of government are all involved in providing services and making sure this individual is taken care of. So what would you have as a call to action for somebody, for example, who lives in Ontario like myself, that wants to to reach out to the policymakers, whether those policymakers are city level, provincial level, or federal level. What could be one call to action that we can issue? Um, again, a call to action that I would like to give. And again, you've touched on so many areas of importance. And for me personally, my call to action in terms of what policymakers can do is to consider domestic violence or intimate partner violence as a public health issue, just as we have done with smoking, just as we have done with driving whilst intoxicated, just as we have addressed the issue of the impact of HIV and AIDS in the 80s. These are serious issues. When you look at the cost, the financial cost, for example, in a lifetime of domestic violence in the United States, for example, it says it's over $103,767 in terms of financial cost. And you look at the productivity that this is having, we are spending as taxpayers, we do spend a lot of money. And so looking at the depth that this has on our society, it's high time that policymakers look at ways that we can combat or prevent from happening. When we do have victims, it's important that these services are there so that they can have access to them and that they can get the help that they need. And it's to have a multi-agency approach to these issues. There is no point in a victim accessing just one service. All services must work together. In the United Kingdom, the Services Commission, within multi-agency approach, once a police officer receives a call of an incident of domestic abuse, it is required by law for the police officer to make referral to a domestic violence service provider, a local authority where you have a social worker if there are children involved, and if there are elderly persons, you go to adult safeguarding. So in order to safeguard and protect the victims and the dependents, 
once the police gets the call, these are the steps they must follow. And it's a legal requirement that they must make a referral to the domestic violence service so that the domestic violence services could do an assessment of the risk in which that individual is in. Yesterday, they've gone to the incident and this is what was observed as part of that incident. However, they now need to make sure that a domestic expert needs to look at what has been going on. It's possible that this individual has been going through a series of abuse. This could not be the first incident. So it's important that the police makes that referral. And in making that referral, they then kick off what we call a multi-agency risk assessment where the doctor would be required to attend because they are statutory bodies, a nurse, a school. So all these individuals that are statutory providers must attend the meeting. A domestic violence agency present the case to say this is what was observed by the police who attended the incident. And these are some of the actions that we can take to safeguard and protect the victim and their dependents. So Everybody has a part to play. It's everybody's responsibility when addressing the issue of violence in our community. And I think if we look at it that way, in terms of the collective effort, it's something that we can do. But we all have to work together. This is not something that is just incumbent on just domestic violence services providing support to victims, but everybody has to work together to see how best we can support. Thank you so much. Basically, if we look at domestic violence, gender-based violence, violence against women and girls, like we have seen smoking. And and in Ontario, some of the cities had domestic violence, gender-based violence, violence against women and girls as epidemic. But the province hadn't seen it that way. Yes. Until we name it, we won't know what to do with it. And once it becomes a public health, it means everybody now sees it for what it is and we all have a part to play in eliminating it. And that's the stance that the United Kingdom has taken towards coming up with a strategy on violence against women and girls, which requires every local authority, every city, town in the United Kingdom has a domestic violence commissioner. We have the overall commissioner and is within the commissioner's role to ensure that the services are catering to the demands of those communities. The commissioner then works with other commissioners, like the commissioner for health, commissioners for policing, and they all come together. So it's a multitude of professionals, um, law enforcement authorities working together side by side. Because again, when we look at the overall cost that domestic violence or gender-based violence has on community, it is robbing us of some of our values. So in order for us to address those issues, we need a collective approach to it. And that is what is happening here. Thank you so much. Thank you for joining us. Please remember to like, follow, subscribe, and share. And join us next week for another episode of the podcast, Break the Silence and Build the Future.